our holy triune God, we thank you for your word. And as out of step with your word as our culture is today, we pray that you would help us be faithful to it. We also pray that you would help us be gracious in the way that we're faithful to it. And that we would be kind in dealing with others who differ from us. And so this morning, I pray that you would allow the, the needle to be thread, not using the hands of a novice preacher, but the Spirit-guided hands that happens as your word goes forth. I do pray that you would give us understanding, and I pray that you'd give us joyful submission, and I pray that you would do all of this for your glory. I pray that we would hear what needs to be heard, we would read and see what's in your word, and I pray that you would give us grace as we seek to apply these truths, therefore our good. And so help us see that and embrace that this morning. You're worthy. We want to acknowledge that, and may we show that in how we submit to your good design. And so I recognize the grace that's needed. So would you allow the sermon that is heard to be extremely much more effective than the one that's on this manuscript and that will be preached. For your glory, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I praise God that over the last several weeks, the word has not ceased going forth with clarity and with accuracy uh, through faithful brothers that the Lord is raising up here. Uh, Covenant Life Church I was sharing with another pastor recently just in some ways there is an embarrassment of riches of God's kindness to us here. I pray that you would feel that, that you would thank God for that. Well, it's with unprecedented efficiency the prevailing culture is seeking to blur the distinctions between men and women. I came across a New York Times article that was entitled, How to Raise a Child Without Imposing Gender. The subtitle was, More Parents Are Stripping Nurseries of All Gender Cues to Create Spaces Where Children Can Develop Their Own Identities. And the opening lines read like this, Elliot Clare, what kind of baby name is that? A girl's name? A boy's name? Both? Mission Accomplished said Elizabeth and Sean Scotton of Oakland, California, who became parents to Elliot Clare a few years ago. We love the juxtaposition of a name that's more traditionally masculine and a name that's more feminine. And as the baby grows up, she, interesting, can use any combination of the two as she chooses. This article, I believe, summarizes the mantra of our culture that's obsessed with recreating self. We live in a time where the culture is putting before us the lure of a finely crafted social media feed that filters to a watching world whoever we want to be seen as. Who knew that this could be so exciting? That we get to promote and to project ourselves and we are lauded and praised because we're looked at as the sculptor, 
the fashioner, the designer. The, the culture insists that we're all sculptors who can fashion ourselves into whoever we want to be. And the more creative and the more distinct that we can be, the more celebrated by the culture we are because we're known as trailblazers, doing something no one else has done. And if you've ever created something, perhaps you know all too well how rewarding it can be to marvel at your creation, to sit back, if you will, and sort of look at the masterpiece that you've created and to look down and to see your signature, something that you put together. Works that have signatures on them are not to be defaced and they're not to be tampered with. This morning, I wonder if you are aware or if you remember that all human beings were fashioned and form, formed in the womb with a signature. A signature representing the good designer behind our identity. I mean, this is at the core of who we are as people. People who were created in the image of God and he has fashioned us in his image and he's done that. Genesis 1:27 lets us know how he has fashioned us in his image. Listen to what the word of God says. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. As we think about the signature that's on every human life, the signature of not our own names, but the signature of the God who creates us, we're reminded that our gender informs our identity. And with our gender comes a set of God-given roles that are meant to encourage us and help us take our place in His good design. We have less right to change our God-given identities as we do to walk into the National Gallery with our watercolors and begin to sort of spruce up the paintings of Van Gogh and Picasso and Michelangelo. Those works are not ours to fashion as we would like. And we're told in God's Word that in our mother's womb, it was God who fashioned us to be who we are. And so God is the wise sculptor who tells us who we are to be and what we are to do for his glory and who he has made us to be and what he has called us to do is good. You can search high and low in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 and find nothing that is not good. And that good design informs who we are and that good design also informs how we are to conduct ourselves in the household of faith. And that's why Paul is writing this letter to young Timothy to encourage him to lead the church in a way that makes clear that we know how to conduct ourselves in the household of faith. This church that he's writing to was a bit of a mess. False teachers had risen up and they were teaching, uh, they were promoting doctrines that would lead people to believe in myths and genealogies and self-made ideas about God. And so in other words, what we could say is that they were biblically creative. They were biblically speculative, but they were not biblically faithful in their teaching. And this had produced 
a church that was at odds with one another, a church that was confused about God's good design for his people. And because Paul loves this church, he calls upon young Timothy to address these issues to help realign the church. And so what we'll see in our passage today, and I would encourage you, if you have a Bible, to open your copy of the Word of God. Keep it in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to use either of the ones that are in the pew back. I will be preaching from the New American Standard. First Timothy, I don't know the page number. First Timothy, chapter 2. Would love for you just to see that these are not Justin's opinions about the matter. We want to be convinced that these are God's word. And pastors need to know this. And the church needs to know this so that we together can live out God's good design in the church. And what we're going to see is that there were men who were not being holy and they were not praying. There were women who were more concerned about drawing attention to themselves than using their good works to draw attention to their God. And we will see that there was a church that was confused whenever they came together. How is it that they were to to respond and how is it that they were to act? And this is potentially one of the most misunderstood and wrongly applied and debated portions of the Word of God. So I recognize that this is controversial this morning. But I want to be clear, controversial doesn't always and necessarily mean unclear. This passage, I don't believe, is difficult to understand. This passage is difficult to apply. And it would be helpful for us as we approach this passage to pray earnestly, to think deeply, to search all the scriptures, and in the end, to allow the meaning of the text to be the meaning of the text. It's so easy when we approach passages that are hard or uh, controversial to to look at a passage and to think, ah, man, I I just don't think I like this. And so we begin to sort of write that out. And I don't know if I like this. And we begin to write that out. And I don't know if I like this. And we begin to write that out. And what we end up doing is not holding the Word of God, but crafting our own. And it's not God that we're ultimately believing in, but it's ourselves. And so when it comes to the Bible, it's good for us to remember we take it all or we deny it all. And there really is no middle ground. And this is a challenge for the church culture even today. Why is it that we have to deal with these hard texts? Well, the reason it's a challenge for the church culture today is because There's likely a church down the street that holds your view and will never deal with these texts to begin with. And I know this is true about the Bay Area. And it's one of the reasons that here at Covenant Life, we've committed to preach through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, believing that God knows best and He is setting the agenda for what it is that we need to hear. And so we don't pick and choose. We say all of it is profitable. And we submit to all of it. For, if you're not a Christian this morning, perhaps you're thinking, I'm, I'm unsure about what I believe about God's design. If I could just encourage you, give God the benefit of the doubt, even for the next few moments. He's good. Though there have been abuses by his people, he is good. And he never requires us to do anything that is not good for us. And you think, well, I'm just not convinced that I think 
uh, the gender roles look like this or that ministry should look like this or that men and women are not like this. And, and, and you are free to hold your opinion. But I would just ask, did you come to that conclusion from wrestling with the word of God? And if not, give him a chance this morning. And you may say, well, I can't believe this because no one that I know believes this. And I'll readily admit the, the, the conviction and the belief that we hold about this topic, it's a minority conviction. It's a minority-held view as it pertains to our culture. But it is not a minority-held view as it pertains to history. For over 2,000 years, people have gladly received this as God's good design. And so if you want to look around and say, I don't see anyone else believing this, I would encourage you to look back and to see centuries, centuries of saints who believed this. And so I'm hopeful. This is the longest introduction ever, but I am hopeful. I'm hopeful because I believe that we as a church need to not just know the right conclusions, but we need to know from where in the Bible we draw them. We don't want to be a church that can just stand up and give the bumper sticker answers without having God-ordained conviction running through our bones, believing that the Bible teaches this. I'm also hopeful because I believe that as churches get these issues right, it helps their witness and their evangelism to the world. Do you remember what Jay led us in last week? God desires that all would be saved. And so we pray for that. And on the heels of that, he talks about how the church is ordered. It matters. It, it's, it's a compelling witness when the church is ordered rightly in God's good design. And so we don't want to say, we don't care about these things because we want to be reaching the world. No, if we want to reach the world, we, we will care about how the church is ordered. But I'm also hopeful because I believe that addressing this topic biblically will help safeguard us to disregarding the authority of the Bible concerning other issues. I mean, our cultural moment has shown that oftentimes when retreat happens here over God's good design for gender, then that retreat gives way to other retreats about sexuality. And when the authority of God's word is undermined, then the acceptance of the biblical gospel is at risk. And so I want to be clear, the Christian faith has been one of the strongest proponents in all of history for society recognizing the worth and the value of women. And it's done this while at the same time insisting that leadership in the church is reserved for qualified males. How do we put those two things together? I believe 1 Timothy chapter 2, 8 through 15 we'll find five timeless truths. Not culturally specific truths. Timeless truths of how the church should conduct itself when she gathers together. Those five truths will be our sermon points. Number one, men are to be holy and to pray. We see this in verse 8. Men are to be holy and to pray. Listen again. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Paul begins in transitioning away from this, this reminder and this call. When we come together, we want to be a people that pray. And this is how we pray. 
And this is why we pray. He circles back around to that call to pray, and he specifically, he doesn't, uh, the word there for men isn't just general humanity. It's a gender-specific word. Males, men, you are to be praying. And this doesn't mean that women are not to pray. We see this in Acts chapter 2. We read this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Women are praying in the assembly. So this doesn't mean that only men are to pray and that women are not to pray. But it does appear that there is a reason that Paul is going after and calling on men to lead out in prayer. And it also appears that given the context and given Paul's instruction that some men either were not praying or if they were praying, they were praying and they were angry. And their life was riddled with division. Men have a role to play in every place that the church is gathered. Paul's admonition is clear. This isn't just for those that are in Ephesus. These are men in every place. They are to pray, and they are to lead others in prayer. And so do you know what's vital in the Christian life? What's vital in the Christian life is reading the Bible and teaching others the Bible and being a part of a a local church in which these are values that are held up. It's vital that we work hard with our hands and we sacrifice for our family. But Paul says, no, no, no. It's also vital that we pray. Men are to be praying men. Author Paul Miller says, if you're not praying, then you are quietly confident that time, money, and talent are all you need in your life. And I believe men in particular are prone to strong forms of self-sufficiency. And I believe we can look at the state of many marriages and the state of many churches and we can begin to make the correlation that a lack of prayer to God has left many marriages and many churches exposed to the enemy because men are not obeying. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. And perhaps men are uttering words And Paul's concern is not merely that men stand up and utter words. He wants there to be a a corresponding life that would match those words. Their praying is to be marked by the lifting up of holy hands. Their praying is to be marked uh, by not having anger or division. And so this isn't Paul saying every time you pray, you have to raise your hands. There are different postures all throughout the Bible that uh, postures of prayer all throughout the Bible. I don't, but don't believe Paul is saying this is the only way that you pray. This is the only way that men should pray. No, the lifting up of holy hands is less about the hands and the posture and more about the purity of heart. I mean, it doesn't make sense for men to approach a holy God in prayer all the while holding on to the sin in their lives. It's hypocrisy. It's the words of God to the prophet Isaiah. Though your words are many and your lips keep moving, your heart is far from me. God cares very little about the performance of men who are praying in this room if outside of this room 
they live as though there is no God. This purity of heart is put on display. This lifting up of the holy hands is put on display by putting away anger and putting away division. A man who consistently prays will be a man who's, who sees growth consistently in becoming less angry. And so, man, if you tend to easily lose your cool, there's no better place for you to be than on your knees before a holy God. 1 Timothy 2.8 says, your church needs this from you. This section isn't merely about what women are to do and not to do. This section begins with men and makes clear what it is that we are to do. And so men, do you pray regularly? If not, please, brothers, repent of that. And began to do that. And watch God soften your heart and assuage your anger when you pray. Man, is there anything about your life that's unreconciled with another brother or sister in Christ? If there is, then go and make it right. You don't have to pray about whether you go. Pray about the manner in which you go, but go. Watch the fruitfulness of this church grow as we pray together and lead one another in prayer. And so Paul makes clear that manhood is when holy men lift holy hands before their holy God in prayer. And so men, don't play games with your faith. You, you, you win nothing by coming in here to put on a show. Let's be men who are full of integrity who pray in this room, who pray outside of this room, who put away sin in this room, who put away sin outside of this room, and who encourage one another to do the same. When the church gathers, men are to be holy and pray. It leads to the second truth. Number two, women are to be modest and do good. Women are to be modest and do good. Listen again to verses 9 and 10. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Paul contrasts this call that he makes specifically to males in verse 8 by addressing females, and he addresses females for the remainder of this chapter. And, and I, I do want to say, I would encourage you to come back next week because in the prohibition of a few things in this verse, it connects to the next section, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And so just as men are to be strong, or, or just as men are strong and are, are in need of a related warning against anger and division, I think Paul understands that women are beautiful. And are in need of a related warning against show and superficiality. And so again, what this doesn't mean is that, that there are no men that are prone to draw attention to themselves. Uh, there is no shortage of those. 
But it appears that some women were distracting in the gathering and they were not being adorned by good works. And so I think we could just say how we conduct and carry ourselves among the body and before the world, that matters. How you carry and conduct yourself among this church family and before the world, it matters. When we focus on the appearance, on our appearance at the neglect of godliness, we're not in a good place. And the particular trappings of this culture in Ephesus were with braided hair and jewelry and clothing. And I have read more than I probably should have read over the last few weeks about the cultural uh, challenges and the cultural uh, happenings in this time. And those three things in particular, braids, jewelry, and nice clothes, they were warned to do really one of two things, to show off self or to show off wealth. And so... The body was coming together. The women were showing up and the women were saying, I want you to look at me. And I want you to look at what I have. Peter mentions a similar concern in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. I would encourage you to look at that. And I believe what we find is the problem that both Paul and Peter address, it's not with braids. The problem, if you're wearing a piece of jewelry this morning, this is not the time to sort of take it off and slide it into your purse and <laughs> undo the hair. And... Paul's not laying out a perpetual prohibition against having braids in your hair, wearing jewelry, or wearing nice clothes. What Paul is saying and what Peter says is don't wear or be marked by that which would distract from the cultivation of the inner person of the heart. Don't distract from that. Ladies, this isn't a call to be homely. It's a call to be holy. And so when we talk about modesty, it would be easy for us to sort of run to a set of guidelines and rules that say, hey, the hemline has to look like this. Uh, modesty doesn't begin and end with hemlines. It begins and ends with heart. And you say, well, why in the world does Paul care about this? Because Paul is convinced that when you become a child of God, that changes everything about you. It changes who your life is meant to draw attention to. It also changes those moments of judgmental thoughts when other people aren't adhering to what we think modesty looks like. Paul's reminding the women, you do not live for the stares that you provoke. Don't live for those. You are to be known for your good works. And so Paul is admonishing and teaching the women that were there in the church at Ephesus. And in the same way, I would want to offer a similar admonishment to the women here. Don't buy into the lie that your worth is wrapped up in what you look like or whether or not people notice you. Your true beauty, which is precious to God, 
Let that radiate from your heart and life. And men, in a world that objectifies women, can we just not be men that do that? Your pursuits are speaking to our sisters. Stop being all about the externals, men. And I don't want to say that externals aren't relevant, but externals are not ultimate. And so the dress that you praise and the women that you pursue, it says much to the sisters who were seeking to adorn themselves with good works. Do you remember what, what, rate, what made Ruth stand out to Boaz? Do you remember this interaction? Ruth has found favor. She's gleaning in Boaz's field. Ruth has no clue how in the world she has found favor. And she even asked Boaz, how have I found favor in your sight? Do you remember what Boaz says in Ruth chapter 2, verse 11? He said, it's because of all that you've done for your mother-in-law. Boaz heard about the godliness of Ruth and it took his breath away. Men, we can cultivate better appetites than putting the accent mark over purely external. Notice and value our sisters, not as the world does, but for their Christ-like service to Jesus. And what Paul and what Peter says in 1 Peter 3 is that when churches do this, it will bear fruit. It is good. And so we can critique purity culture all day. And I recognize that there are men who have been abusive, who have used verses like this to sort of so posture and position themselves over women and to say, my sin is your fault, you made me do that. And so we can critique that, and I'm willing to have that conversation. But bottom line, based on 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, the Word of God encourages women to adorn themselves with what best demonstrates a humble heart of worship that's devoted to God. And so, sisters, what's most noticeable? And what do you give most time to? Your clothing? Or your character. Sisters, don't buy into the lie that our world is feeding you. God's design is good. When the church gathers, men are to be holy and pray. When the church gathers, women are to be modest and do good. Leads to the third truth. Number three. Women are to receive instruction quietly and with submissiveness. And perhaps you were thinking, hey, we're going, it's going pretty good. I think we're going <laughs> to. Women are to receive instruction quietly and with submissiveness. Look at verse 11. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. And so I just want to be clear. The sermon points are literally Pulled. They're, they're the verse. <laughs> What's interesting is that our culture presses the manner of learning as the most controversial part of this verse. 
But if we were to have the ears of the original listener who hears this, it wouldn't be that women had to learn with submissiveness and quietness. What would be most shocking and provocative to their ears would be the fact that the Christian faith invites women to learn. The Jewish Talmud mentions that men were invited to learn and women were invited to hear. I mean, it's clear that women were not uh, given the same opportunities to sit and to be a learner. And again, and perhaps that's your impression. Perhaps you're not a Christian. You're thinking, that's the impression that I have of the Christian faith. I just want you to know that impression couldn't be any further from the truth. The Christian faith is following Jesus Christ. You know what Christ did? He went out of his way to have interactions with women. He went out of his way to encourage women. He allowed the whole resurrection account to be verified first by women. When Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, while Martha was busying herself serving, it was Jesus who said that Mary had chosen the good portion of sitting and learning. Let the women learn. That felt uncomfortably progressive in the first century. But, to be fair, the weight of this verse isn't merely in the fact that women are invited and commanded to learn. It's the manner. Paul's making clear. He didn't just throw these in as afterthoughts. They are prominent in this verse. Women are to receive instruction quietly and with entire submissiveness. And so when the church gathers, women should respectfully receive God's word in a posture of submission. And I I appreciate and agree with how the NASB uh, translates this and gets this. It's It's not women are to be silent. It's women are to receive instruction quietly. Quietly, I believe, is a better translation than silence. 1 Corinthians 11, so let me, let's make clear what we're not saying and what Paul isn't saying. Paul's not contradicting what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that in the assembly there would be some women who would be prophesying and praying. No, but when we look at verse 11, in light of what's following, verse 12, what we realize is that women are not to teach in the gatherings, but to humbly learn in the gatherings. And again, if you are not a Christian, I am so thankful that you're here. And and maybe you're just thinking, ah, this is such an interesting day to show up. (laughs) And I've had questions, and and now we're beginning to really get into sort of some of the the qualms that I have, or at least that I've heard about when it comes to the Christian faith. And I realize that when you hear quietness and with entire submissiveness, that can sound degrading. But I just want you to know, Christians don't feel that submission is degrading at all. Christians believe that submission is a wonderful thing that we should honor. Christians honor submission. Do you know why? Because we worship one who humbled himself, who submitted himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In fact, Christians believe that our fundamental problem happened in an act of an unwillingness to submit to God's good design. In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve didn't submit to the authority of God, 
And so our sinfulness and all of the problems in the world that you experience and that we experience and that we see, it's all owing to a lack of submission. God should and will judge us for our insubordination. And the Bible makes clear that that is what's going to happen for everyone who goes into the grave having not submitted to this good God. And you say, Justin, that sounds like the worst news possible. And it is. It's the most just of news, but it is the worst. And, and the only way that it becomes the best is if God does something for us that we could not do on our own. And the good news of the Christian faith is that he sent Christ, God the Son, to live a perfectly submissive life. And he died on the cross for the lack of submission for all of his people. He died to satisfy the, the justice of the Father against sin. And he rises from the third day, showing that he alone is to be trusted. He alone is to be believed in. And that his submission was accepted and received. And the work is now done. The good news this morning is that that God who did the unthinkable because of his mercy invites you to submit to him, to confess your sin and to turn from your sin and to cry out for the mercy that's only found in Christ. Your sin will only be dealt with if it's covered by the blood of Jesus. And so the good news this morning is that if you turn from your sin and believe, he will be faithful and just to restore you to God. How sweet would it be that on the day that you talked about gender roles and submission, that God in mercy reached down and pulled you out of your sin. Submission doesn't imply inferiority. In fact, submission is the only way that we will ever get to God. And so if you're not a Christian, I would plead with you, turn from your sin and trust in the work of Christ. And if you have questions about that, even in the midst of questions about gender and submission, it would be our joy to talk with you further. Don't leave today. Don't allow whatever the Lord may be doing, even in through this sermon over the next few days to go unchecked. Have conversations. Respond to his mercy. If he's wooing you, submit. Submission doesn't imply inferiority. Wives submit, submitting to husbands, Ephesians chapter 5, doesn't mean that wives are inferior. 1 Peter 5, young men are to be submissive. Romans 13, all of us are to submit ourselves to authority. We should all be submitting ourselves to God. Children are to submit themselves to their parents. Christ would submit to the Father. And so this means that there were different roles. It doesn't necessarily mean that there were lesser roles. Our, our culture says equality must equal sameness. Scripture does not say that. There can be distinctions and you still have equality with others. In fact, that is so how God has designed this. 
If you believe that distinctions are always a tool and a means of oppression, I believe that you're on your road to being deceived in the same way that Eve was. Have distinctions been used throughout history to oppress? Regrettably and sad, sadly, yes. But they aren't always. If we say all distinctions are oppressive, then we are saying God's good design is. And just to remind you, Genesis 1 and 2, where design happened, that was before Genesis 3, sin entering into the world. And so this passage, this, this verse 11 and even verse 12, it, it, it's not talking about women in business. It's not talking about women, women in government. You may not want to follow a boss or a politician who's a woman, but 1 Timothy chapter 2 really isn't going to help you much there. This issue isn't that women couldn't teach. Christianity presented a much higher view of women than Jewish and Greek culture did. This is an invitation for women to be learners. Women are being enjoined to submit to the authority of the church. Many cultures, even today, we have nationalities in this church body who live in cultures in which women are treated as second-class citizens. And we as a church want to help all women grow up to be mighty in the scriptures. Here at Covenant Life, we want our women to be exemplary disciple makers. Priscilla was hardly passive in instructing Apollos. And so I just, even on, even on that precedent, women, I, I want you, you coming and sitting quietly and receiving instruction with submissiveness, I, I'm soliciting your input. There's a means and a proper way that would allow the order of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 to remain. And so feel free to give me feedback. Feel free to give uh, uh, feedback to our elders. Help us grow. Send us suggestions. Send us questions. Send us suggestions on who should be elders. Send us questions and suggestions on ministry gaps. If you're married, approach your godly husband. If you're not married or you don't have a godly husband, approach your elders. Have conversations. I'm so thankful for the women in our church family. I meet with pastors, they regularly talk about their churches, and I praise God. I praise God that Covenant Life Church is full of godly women. That is a gift of grace to this church. I praise God that when we give out books, it's not just men and members meetings who are raising their hands because they're the only ones that want to learn. I'm so thankful for a dev devout and, and a, uh, an appetite that longs to devour good books and a, a desire to make disciples. The women of this church have been models for hospitality and reaching out to others. And so I just want, if you are a woman, if, if you're a woman <laughs> who's a member of this church, I just want to thank you are a delight to pastor. One of the sweetest things about preparing for this sermon is, has been this, just looking through the directory, praying for our church and seeing your faces and just going, praise God for his gift. It's a privilege to have a church full of godly women who are seeking to mature their faith and the faith of others. When the church gathers, women are to receive instruction quietly and with submissiveness. Leads us to the fourth truth. Number four, women are not to teach or exercise authority over men. Women are not to teach or exercise authority over men. We see this in verses 12 through 14. 
Verse 12 highlights two functions. Listen again. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Some people read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, and they say, uh, women can preach as long as women preaching are under the authority of the elders in the church. And in order to get there, what you have to do with 1 Timothy 2, 12 is to say that those two functions do not teach and exercise authority, are really only talking about the office. And so a woman can do the functions as long as she's not holding the office of a pastor. And while I have heard many of those arguments, I believe just grammatically from the text, that's not what we see. There are two functions that Paul is writing about. And those two functions are prohibited. And because those two functions do inform what it is that pastors do, we'll talk about this next week, I do believe that means women ought not serve as pastors of local churches. That is an office that's reserved for men. Because of these two things, 1 Timothy 2.12. But I do understand, and the elders believe, that 1 Timothy 2.12 isn't merely just talking about Two, two kind of ex, uh, functions and exercises that sort of are summarizing the office, we believe that these two functions stand on their own as well. The parameters are clear. In the gathering of the church, when the Bible is taught, women are prohibited from teaching. Now, I want to be clear. It's not all teaching, Right? Because Paul writes in other places. He writes to Titus in Titus chapter 2, and he tells, he instructs women to teach other women. And so his issue here is not that women can never teach. It's that there are certain settings that women can never teach. In fact, church history has affirmed that there are many godly and really effective women teachers. And the church is strengthened whenever their ministries are rightly upheld. And the church is harmed whenever their ministries are wrongly applied. And so this isn't saying that women can't teach men or exercise authority in any sphere of life. This isn't saying that any man in the church has authority over any woman in the church, as we'll see next week, right? So some people want to look at 1 Timothy 2.12 and say, ah, this is, this is discrimination. This is saying men can do this and women can't do this. And I just want to come and say, no, the text doesn't say that men can do this. The text says that qualified men can do this. And so the discrimination goes even further if that's your line of reasoning. The majority of men in any given con congregation would have to stand up and say, I feel like I'm being discriminated against because I can't be this. And so what this means here at Covenant Life, that in mixed adult company in order to safeguard the women from being in, a, in a, a scenario, in a situation in which they would be working against God's good design. And because we believe God to be upholding a good design, 
in any mixed adult company, only men will teach the Word of God at Covenant Life Church. Only qualified men will serve as pastors. And you may be thinking, ah, Justin, that this is where the whole train just fell over. Why in the world can you say that? And praise be to God, I can just say verses 13 and 14, Paul says exactly why he says that. Look again at verses 13 and 14. It was Adam who was first created and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. This is not a culturally conditioned response. He's not rooting what's happening in the, in the church at Ephesus into something that was specific to Ephesus. He actually roots what's happening in, in this teaching that he's given, not in what's happening in Ephesus. He takes it all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. And he says, no, this is what, what I'm admonishing you and teaching you with has always been God's good design. It's common to hear people say, well, he, he said this because women weren't educated in Ephesus or women were teaching false doctrine in Ephesus. No, Paul roots this in creation. And so remember, Genesis 1 and 2, we come away from that and we're thinking very good. And so he's rooting this teaching into something that is very good. And he gives two things. He gives verse 13, why this ordering? Why these roles? Because God created Adam first. And maybe that seems insignificant to you. But do you remember? You remember the marvel and the pride that wells up whenever, whatever it is that you've created, and you see your signature on that. And you think, it all must be significant to the Creator. And so you may be thinking, oh, that, the fact that Adam came first, that's insignificant. That doesn't seem like a big deal. But it was significant to God. In fact, it was even before the fall. So sin doesn't create distinctions and roles. If you, if you believe that, then you are blatantly disregarding Genesis 1 and 2. Being created first does not mean... They were created best. This isn't about if you're first, then you're best. As Kevin DeYoung would say, then we should all remember that beavers and salamanders were made before men. <laughs> and, being, and being a helper, that doesn't mean less. One of the Old Testament people, Israel, one of their favorite and most cherished names of God was that he was our helper. It's intriguing that God made humanity, male and female, to bear his image. He could have made them at the same time, but he didn't. Why? Because there was a design and there was an order to the creation. He formed Adam and then from Adam came Eve. And so by creating man first, God placed man in the position of primary leadership and in teaching and responsibility. This is based on how God wanted it before there was sin. And there were two genders that were meant to complement one another. Complement, not say nice things about one another. Complement, to supply what the other was lacking. And in the creation order, 
God said, not that there's anything lacking as it pertains to leadership. And so verse 13, why does this order matter? Because God created Adam first. And then verse 14, this was God's idea because Eve was deceived. Genesis chapter 3, just read Genesis chapter 3, step away and then ask yourself, were both Adam and Eve deceived? It seems that Genesis chapter 3 doesn't say yes, that both Adam and Eve were deceived. In fact, the implication is that Adam knew what he was doing. That would mean that his sin would run deeper. Adam abdicated his role as leader and following God as his leader. Eve was deceived by, the, by one of the animals that they were to rule over, and Adam followed Eve, and what happens in that is that the roles were reversed. Covenant life, feel the weight of this. Sin enters the world through the reversal of God-given roles, and that's the point Paul is making. Although the woman was created second, woman sinned first. And although the woman was created as helper, she stepped out as leader. And all the while, Adam failed to lead. Eve failed to follow. The roles were reversed. Sin ensues, and this was all Satan's intent. Satan's goal was to assault the the God and good design of God by seeking to subtly deceive the woman instead of going to the man. If God wants man to bear special responsibility for leadership, how can the enemy destroy that? By going to the woman instead. And so he goes to Eve. He puts her in a position of being the spokesman, of being the leader, of being the protector and the defender, and that was never where she was intended to be. And in doing so, he puts Adam in a position of being silent and being fearful and being passive and being apathetic. That is not a position he was ever intended and created to be. And both Adam and Eve take the bait. And here's the thing. What I just described has happened in the garden in Genesis 3 continues to happen today. Gender confusion began in the garden and it continues today. Ligon Duncan said in summarizing what happened in the garden, Adam and Eve were supposed to rule over the animals, and instead they submitted to one. Eve, who was supposed to submit to Adam, instead urges Adam to join her in her sin. Adam, who should have said to the serpent, stop tempting my wife, I'm the one in charge, instead passively stands by while the conversation takes place. Adam, who should have been defending God's honor, instead silently sits there while an animal whom he has been given dominion over dishonors God by calling him stingy and selfish and a liar. And the whole passage reeks of role reversal. Animal over woman, woman over man, man preferring himself over God, man being passive when he should have been active, woman being active when she should have been passive. And the order that we experience in this world, it's all intended to remind us there was a good design. And so verses 13 and 14 don't mean that women shouldn't be pastors and they shouldn't exercise authority and they shouldn't be teaching over men because they're more gullible. Because they're more easily and readily deceived and somehow men aren't gullible and are not easily deceived. The pornography industry would just remind us that men are so easily deceived. 
men and women are both prone to sin when they forsake the order that God has intended. And so Covenant Life Church, let's pray that we would be a church that insists humbly and lovingly on that order because it's for our good. And when we submit to it, we declare loudly about his glory. And so when the church gathers, women are to not teach or exercise authority over men. And I will mention the last point, verse 5, or number 5, verse 15. Women who embrace their God-ordained design in faith and holiness will be rewarded. Women who embrace their God-given design in faith and holiness will be rewarded. I don't know how I don't just preach this point because it's so interesting. The point of verse 15 is a reiteration of Paul saying that God's good design and plan is good. It's good. I believe verse 15 balances out any perceived harshness that that could be implied from 12 through 14. But that phrase, women will be preserved through the bearing of children. And perhaps yours says women will be saved. Your translation may read women will be saved through childbearing. Well, let me be clear about what that isn't saying. That isn't saying that women are eternally saved through having children. That undermines grace alone through faith alone. In Christ alone. That's not what's happening. That also means that all men would be hosed. Nor does it mean that Christian women keep their salvation by having children. Church history would testify that many Christian women have not given birth to children. And that had no bearing on their eternal state. Nor does it mean that Christian women will, keep, will be kept physically safe through the experience of childbirth. Church history testifies many Christian women have died in the process of bearing children. A popular reading and interpretation of this verse would say, ah, this is looking back to the promise of Genesis chapter 3. That Eve, the one being referenced in 13 and 14, as she gives birth to one who will come, salvation will be made possible and, and will be accomplished even through the birth of Jesus. I understand uh, I understand how and why people would look at that and say, I think that makes most sense. I'm unconvinced of that view. And so this is how I understand what verse 15 is saying. It seems a better understanding to remember the role, role reversals that he's been addressing. And so saved can mean salvation, preserved, it can mean salvation from sin and its consequences, or it can mean to be rescued or to be kept safe from. And so I understand the, the, the verse to read, but women will be kept safe through the bearing of children. She'll be kept safe from wrongly embracing men's roles by embracing her uniquely God-given feminine role. And he uses childbearing as a function that's unique to women alone to represent that role. And so if you don't have children, that doesn't mean that you can't do this. I believe what he's saying is you will avoid reversing God's order by embracing and living out your God-given femininity. And Paul adds, if you continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. 
And so I understand Paul to be ending this passage by saying, go and be a woman. God is pleased when you embrace your womanhood. Trust his word. Obey him. It doesn't mean that your fertility dictates your godliness. It doesn't mean that your singleness means that you miss out on this blessing. It means that whatever station of life you are in, be a woman of faith and a woman of the word. That's what makes you beautiful to God and to the godly. Obeying the Lord brings great reward. We probably should close. Man, I have uh, five concluding thoughts. <laughs> um, uh, I'll at I just want to at least read the first sentence. And literally, so just five sentences. Um, this is what happens when I have a month off. Uh, uh, so number one, as a pastor, I am troubled to see how churches who once embraced this view of complementarianism, that God has so designed the genders to complement one another. I am burdened to see how churches who retreated here now retreat in so many other issues. Church, I don't think we can put a fence around this issue that's strong enough. Whenever we adopt a hermeneutic, a study of the Bible that allows us to hold the culture's view on the Bible, soon enough we begin to adopt the culture's view on the Bible. Number two, I am aware that this passage throughout history has been used by sinful and ungodly men to abuse women. And I grieve with you. And I know that uh, perhaps you have been the victim of some sort of abuse. And I want to say a word to all of our sisters in the room. If your husband is abusing you in any way and he's hiding behind this verse, please let your pastors know. It will not be tolerated here. And for those who have been the victims of abuse, I would just plead with you. And I prayed for you this week that your experience wouldn't make you doubt the goodness of God's design. Uh, my, my prayer literally has been, Lord, may women who have experienced abuse not wander away from Christ on the account of people who may not even belong to him in the first place. Number three. James 3 tells us that teachers will be held to a stricter standard. And uh, sisters, it's not that you are not able to handle such a burden, but in his grace and his good design, you don't have to. Number four, women teaching other women and children in the church is essential to the church's mission. I pray that Covenant Life would be a, 
a church that prays for our women, that God would raise up some of them to teach the Bible to other women and to our children. And so I would encourage you to pray and to give and to keep singing and attending and, and fellowshipping and evangelizing and encouraging and in serving and in reading and in serving and teaching children and supporting and studying and helping and organizing and serving as deacons and teaching other women. Continue your good ministry here. I was recently asked in talking about what I do. I'm a pastor and uh, someone's not a Christian. We were uh, at dinner with them and they said, you're the daughter of three girls. Are you good to look at your daughters and tell them that they can't do something? Like how does, how does your belief here fit and hit your home? And I said, can I just be honest with you? I don't view God's word to want anything other than flourishing for my daughters. And because I want that, I want them to know, not because they're inferior, but because God knows best, that there are certain functions and there are certain roles that they aren't to play. And that in no way limits what uh, all of the good they are intended to do in running through their God-given lanes. And then lastly, just encouragement to us as a church. Let's keep looking at the word together and not the world. And let's prayerfully consider this together. And praise be to God that while there was a role reversal in that garden, later there would be another one, a greater one. Adam stood in the garden and silently failed his wife. Jesus Christ would kneel in the garden and give himself to purchase his bride. Adam's sin brought guilt and death on us all. And Christ's obedience brings forgiveness and life to all who would trust him. And so we, as it relates to gender issues, we're more like Adam and Eve. We fail again and again. But praise be to God, Christ died for Adam's ruined race. And because of that, there's hope. And we as a church want to stand on that. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, as your word has gone forth in...